if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up or pull it up on your phone to Matthew 13, again, verses 47 to 51. We're finishing this morning our five-week journey through a collection of Jesus's parables that Matthew records for us in his gospel account. And these are all parables about how the kingdom of God comes. Remember, the kingdom of God is what the world is like when God gets to be in charge, when things are done the way God wants them to be done. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is always done in heaven, and when heaven comes to earth, when the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven arrives on earth, then God's will is done here on earth the way it's always done in heaven. And we've seen that that's why Jesus came, to bring that kingdom, to start a revolution, to start a movement, which brings God's kingdom to earth. And we've seen that through Jesus's life and ministry, when he was on the earth with us as as a physical human being, we we saw what it looked like when uh, when God gets his way and when God's will is done on earth. We've seen, if you read the story of Jesus, that the, the sick are healed, that those held captive or plagued by dark spirits are set free, that those who are excluded are invited to belong, that people whose differences divide them are united and brought together, that the hungry are fed, that those far from God are sought after and are forgiven and are embraced and are brought back home to God. That those who have been oppressing others, like tax collectors, people like that, repent and they change and they start caring for others. That the rich sell what they have and they take care of the poor. Basically, when the kingdom of God comes, all that's broken in the world is in Jesus' capable hands put back together again. And peace replaces strife. Hope replaces despair. That's the kingdom. And that's what we all long for, right? Wouldn't you like to see the kingdom of God come today? But the big question is, how will it come? How is it going to arrive? How is all this going to happen? How is God's goodwill going to get done on earth? Well, As we've seen in Jesus's parables, which are answering that question, it doesn't come the way that we'd expect it to come. And Jesus gives several different parables, some long, some short, to explain this. And each parable gives us a different lens, a different angle to look at the question of how the kingdom comes. Because the coming of the kingdom is complicated. It's nuanced enough that one parable isn't enough to cover all of its facets. And so, excuse me, we've seen over the past weeks that the kingdom of heaven comes, first of all, like a farmer who goes out and sows seed. The seed is the word that Jesus speaks. And some of it falls on good soil and it produces a rich rich harvest, while other seed falls on thorns or thin soil or the hard path, conditions that are not conducive to growth. And so the seed doesn't wind up being fruitful. Then we saw how the kingdom of God is like a landowner who sowed good seed in his field, but while he slept, an enemy came and sowed poisonous weeds among the wheat. 
And because it was impossible to root out the weeds without destroying the wheat, the landowner decided to wait until the end of the age when the angel harvesters would pull up and burn the weeds before gathering the wheat into his barn. Then we saw how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts so small and seemingly insignificant, but it grows and it grows and it grows until it's large enough to offer shade to all who find shelter in its branches. Likewise, the kingdom of God is like a little bowl of sourdough starter, a little bowl of leaven kneaded into a huge quantity, like 50, 60 pounds of dough. And yet it's potent, it's influential, that little bit of leaven is. And in time, it bubbles and it works its way through all of that dough, impacting the whole amount. And we saw that the kingdom of God is like a man finding rich treasure in a field. And so he sells all that he has and he goes and he buys that field and recovers that treasure. Or it's like a merchant, a pearl merchant seeking fine pearls who uh, when, when he finds the pearl of all pearls, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that pearl. That's how precious, that's how desirable, that's how worth it the kingdom is and why it's worth risking everything to get it and to be a part of it. Well, that leads us finally today to today's parable, and it's about fishermen. And this isn't surprising. After all, where was Jesus when he started telling these parables? He was in a fishing boat on Lake Galilee, and fishing, no doubt, was happening right around him. So now, as he tells this last parable, he picks up the fishing analogy, which was familiar to those listening. They knew how fishermen did their thing on the Lake of Galilee, where they were, and, and how fishermen would use a large dragnet and uh, with one or two boats would take it out, let it down in the water away from shore. It had floats on top. It had weights on bottom. And once it was laid out vertically in the water, it would be like a wall of net, which you could then pull through the water, drag through the water. One way this was done was actually with long ropes to pull it to shore with ropes and um, all the fish between the net and the shore would be pulled towards shore and then they would be wind, wind up caught in the net as the fishermen pulled the whole thing up on shore full of the fish that got swept up and dragged in through the water. And then the fishermen would sit down and they would sort through the fish. Remember, these are Jewish fishermen and not all fish are kosher. So the unclean, unkosher fish, as well as the small ones or the bad tasting ones, the bony ones, would uh, get discarded. While they then took the good ones and they kept those for the family and to bring to market to make a living. So here Jesus gives us through this parable one more window into what the kingdom of God is like and how it comes. One more lens to capture an aspect of how God's will gets done on earth. And no parable by itself is perfect. And this one doesn't work too well if you put yourself in the place of the fish. So let's think of it from the perspective of the fisherman. Fishing is your living. You need a good catch to feed and care for your family. And fishing is an unpredictable business. Sometimes you go out, you work all night, all day, you catch nothing. 
But on the other hand, a good catch means that you can provide for those you love. But even then, you can't use every fish. Your net is indiscriminate in what it pulls up. So you've got to sort through the good from the bad. You've got to sort out the eels and the catfish, whichever fish the Jews wouldn't eat. And you would keep the good eating fish that you can then sell and provide for those who depend on you. That's the fishing process. And Jesus says that it's yet another window into what the kingdom of God is like. Now, fishing is not a new analogy for the kingdom, is it? If you go right back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he used it before. We, we sang about it. The, the kids sang about it earlier. What, what did he tell some of his first followers who were fishermen when he challenged them to follow him? He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of people. That's how Jesus saw what he was doing and what he was training and commissioning and preparing his followers to do as well to fish for people. He and they, as his helpers, are fishermen who are seeking to draw people into God's kingdom. And again, every analogy breaks down at some point. So don't think of it as Jesus wants to catch you so he can eat you or sell you. That's not what he's getting at with this parable. No, think of it as Jesus wants to catch you because you are valuable to him, because you are precious to him. And he wants to invite you into the goodness of the kingdom of God that he came to bring so you don't miss out on it. As I look at this parable, I find even the verbs that Jesus uses here for fishing to be warm and inviting. There's good news in, in these three verbs that Jesus uses here. The first one is in verse 47. The New American Standard uh, translation translates it as gathered. The fishermen let down the nets and they gathered every kind of fish. The Greek verb gathered here is sunago. It's related to the word synagogue, which is literally a gathering. And Jesus himself and through his followers who help him is gathering all kinds of people. Every kind of person. No one is excluded or overlooked. Jesus is not passive. He is not sitting back to see if anybody wants to follow him. No, like a fisherman, he's taking the initiative. He's actively fishing. He's actively tossing out his nets, seeking to gather all kinds of people to himself and into God's kingdom. He wants everyone to enter God's kingdom. This is an invitation. It's a welcome. It's a plea even. Come to me. Be part of God's kingdom. I'm offering you life. I'm offering you healing and wholeness and freedom and purpose and hope and eternity. I'm offering you a place in my kingdom as I bring heaven to earth. Come close. Let me gather you in to be a part of it. The second verb is in verse 48. Again, I like the way the New American Standard Version translates it. Draw. Jesus, the fisherman, and his helpers draw the net to shore. I think this really captures what Jesus is doing. He's seeking to draw us in, to pull us in like gravity. He's uh, enticing us with his teaching. He's, um, or rather, reasoning uh, with us, with his teaching. He's enticing us with his miracles, impressing us with his miracles. And he's appealing to us with his preaching. But I think even more than his teaching and his miracles and his preaching, 
just who Jesus is, is perhaps the most drawing, the most attractive thing of all. If you've ever had the privilege of doing an evangelistic or investigative Bible study with a friend or two who don't know Jesus, but were interested enough to take your invitation to explore uh, with you who Jesus was using, for example, the Gospel of Mark, then maybe you've experienced, like I have, the attractive drawing power of who Jesus is. Jesus can be so attractive to people who have never been exposed to him before. Often what they discover is that he's nothing like whatever preconceived notions they had from school or the culture or the media or sadly even from a lot of churches. Some of us are so familiar with Jesus because we've been hanging around him so long that we have forgotten how radical Jesus is and how refreshing and how intriguing and also how scandalizing. Jesus has a way of drawing people to himself like a good fisherman. Well, then the third verb for what the fishermen do is in verse 48 too. After they sit down, they've brought all the fish up on shore. Depending on your translation, they collect or they choose or they select the good fish to keep. Again, I find this language so welcoming. To be chosen, to be selected, to be collected as something precious and worth keeping. Jesus wants to draw us close, and once he does, he wants to keep us there. As part of his good kingdom, which is making all things right again in the world. Again, three verbs. To be gathered, to be drawn in, to be selected. The whole thing reminds me of that classic children's book, The Runaway Bunny. Do you know it? It's good Mother's Day reading. It begins, once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I am running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. Well, if you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream and I'll swim away from you. If you become a a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman and I will fish for you. And so it continues. Then I'll become a little sailboat and I'll sail away from you, said the little bunny. And the mother replies, if you become a sailboat and sail away from me, I will become the wind and blow you where I want you to go. And next, well, then I'll become a little boy and run into the house, said the little bunny. If you become a little boy and run into the house, said his mother, I will become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. And so it ends, shucks, said the little bunny. I might just as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. (laughs) And so he did. Have a carrot, said his mother. I think that captures these words and and the feeling of this parable of the fishermen, of gathering, of drawing in, of collecting the good fish. This, Jesus tells us, is what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus is fishing for people, seeking to bring them to himself. But that's only half the parable, right? That's the good fish. What about the bad fish? And what's the difference between the good fish and the bad fish? Why does one get selected to keep and the other get thrown away? 
Well, in Jesus's short interpretation of the parable in verse 49, he says the good fish are the righteous and the bad fish are the, are the evil or the wicked. Now, as I've said before, you can't read any one of these parables by itself and, and understand the fullness of the kingdom. No single one of them can tell us everything we need to know about the kingdom or catch every nuance of it. And that's why there are several and each is a window into the whole and they each interpret each other. And so if we go back to the first parable, we find out more insight into who the righteous are that Jesus talks about in this parable. And they are not the good people per se. They are not people who have good lives or good characters who go to church every Sunday. It's not people who are good in and of themselves. Rather, the righteous are people, according to the first parable, who are like good soil, who are receptive to Jesus's words. When Jesus sows his word, these are the people who receive it, and they take it in, and eventually they produce a, cop, a crop. They produce fruit. They receive God's word, and they let it transform their lives. They respond to the word. They respond to the invitation Jesus gives them, and they embrace it, and they, enjoy, they, they uh, join Jesus in his kingdom. These people aren't earning anything here. They aren't deserving anything. They aren't chosen because they're just in and of themselves better people. It, rather, they are people who, who are simply responding like good soil to the invitation that Jesus gives to everyone. And these people are letting Jesus remake their lives as they come close to him so they better reflect and embody God's kingdom. That's how they become righteous people. And I hope that's who you aspire to be. Because by contrast, the wicked are characterized by the three other kinds of soil in the first parable. They're those who hear Jesus' words, but it does not fall on good soil. They reject it because Jesus tells us they're running after wealth or they're distracted by the troubles of life or they're not willing to prioritize Jesus over other pressures and possibilities. And so Jesus' word doesn't take root in them. They remain unchanged, um, and they remain outside of and impervious to the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus means by the bad fish. Or to jump to the second parable Jesus told about the wheat and the poisonous weeds, this is who Jesus means by the poisonous weeds. But here's where today's parable gets difficult. Because in today's fishing parable, Jesus repeats exactly, word for word, a couple of the lines he used at the end of the parable of the weeds. Verse 49 in our passage. This is how it will be at the end of the age. Here Jesus is repeating exactly verse 40 in the parable of the weeds when he interpreted it. And in verse 50 of our passage, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, this is repeating exactly verse 42 from Jesus's interpretation of the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Now, when we looked at that parable, the parable of the weeds and the wheat, several Sundays ago, with that stark, fiery ending, a number of us were uncomfortable with it. We didn't like it. 
it was so black and white. It was so judgmental. We were happy to focus on the good wheat in the parable, which the farmer happily gathered into his barn. But the fact that he burned up the poisonous weeds, it was tempting to just sort of skip over that ending. And it's almost as if Jesus knew our tendency to want to do this, because here, as he tells this last major parable about fishing, that is in a lot of ways like the parable of the weeds and the wheat, Jesus comes back to the fiery furnace ending, and he doubles down on it. In fact, read again verse 49 and 50, where Jesus interprets the parable of the net and the fish for us. We get the interpretation of the parable, but all Jesus gives us is this. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them, the wicked, into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's it for Jesus' interpretation. He says nothing. He gives us no interpretation of the lake or the good fish or the fishermen or the sorting process just an interpretation of the fate of the bad fish, those who are evil. Using the exact words, again, that Jesus used of the weeds in that earlier parable. They'll be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's it, the end, parable completed. Jesus has just doubled down on fiery destruction. As if to say, I meant it the first time. Don't dismiss it. Don't skip past it. Don't explain it away. Deal with it. Absorb it. Consider it. Wrestle with it. Why? Why does Jesus double down? Why does he underline so starkly in this last parable the role that fiery destruction plays in the coming of God's kingdom? Well, evidently, because Jesus knows it's real. And things that are real don't just go away when we wish them away or we pretend that they're not real. So please follow me for a minute on the logic of how God's kingdom comes, according to Jesus' parable. Let's be struck again by how gently the kingdom comes. Jesus doesn't coerce anyone into being part of his kingdom. The parables he tells are not of invading armies or overwhelming floods, but they're mainly of sowing seeds in the soil. Jesus invites people into his kingdom by his word, not by his sword. And people are free, totally free, to accept or to reject Jesus's word. And Jesus seeks to gather them, to, to draw them in. He longs for people to receive him and to enter his good kingdom as they listen and respond to his word. And Jesus seeks to instill that heart in us, his followers, to give us the heart of fishermen so that we'll join him in spreading that word and inviting others in. But this begs the question, what will happen to the people if they refuse to join God's kingdom? If they refuse Jesus' words, if they ignore Jesus' invitation, remember what Jesus is trying to do. He may be gentle. He may just be speaking words, but he is a king, and he is trying to establish a kingdom. 
He's undertaking a revolution because the world is broken. It's messed up and he is trying to fix it. Left to itself without Jesus's help, the world will never fix itself. The past few thousand years of world history should have made that abundantly clear to all of us by now, let alone the past few years. Let me ask you, just read the news. How is the world doing at fixing itself? Not so well, right? The world is broken. It's always been broken. And Jesus knows that ultimately only God's kingdom contains the fix. Help isn't coming from any other quarter. And Jesus has given us an incredible, free, gracious invitation to receive his help, to join his kingdom, even though we don't deserve it. But so question, what will happen? What will Jesus do with those who refuse this invitation? Those who insist on living in the world as it is under other leadership or under no leadership, who don't want to be a part of the solution on Jesus's terms. Well, imagine you work for a company. It's a company that's in bad shape. It's close to going under. It's, it's a mess. It's, it's a wreck. And so new management, maybe a new CEO, is brought in to try to fix it. Or if you're a student, maybe it's your school. It's not fun to go to school. The teachers are mean. The kids are out of control. The administration doesn't understand what it's like to be a kid. The school is run down. It's just miserable to go to that school. And uh, you have some people whether it's at the company or at the school, who refuse to follow the rules, the company policies, the directions of the teachers and the administration. They refuse to abide by the directives of those in charge who've been tasked with trying to turn around this company or the school so that it could be better for everyone. And these people who refuse to listen, they aren't bad people. Some of them can be quite pleasant. Maybe they're funny. And uh, sometimes they do the right thing, but at the end of the day, they decide when and if they'll comply. Or even if bo they bother to read the emails or listen to the instructions of those in authority. They rebel with a smile, even some of them, but the truth be told, the only ones they're willing to answer for or to is themselves. And, um, the leadership, so say you're one of the leaders, you're trying to save, you're trying to fix up this school or company. What do you do with these people who won't comply, who won't listen, who won't get on board? Well, for a while, you can ignore them. You can placate them. You can become codependent and just kind of work around them and pretend they're not pushing against things and ignoring you. But eventually, it's bound to come to a head, right? if things are really going to change and really going to improve. And Jesus says, when you stop and you think about it, these people are eventually bound to become like poisonous weeds. To go back to the parable of the weeds and the wheat. If they refuse God's kingdom, God's efforts through Jesus to restore and redeem the world, if they insist on doing it their own way, there's no real other remedy for them. And they're going to find themselves working against God's kingdom 
being mess makers rather than mess fixers, mess cleaners, problem creators rather than problem solvers. And someday Jesus concludes it is all going to come to a head. Someday the kingdom has to finish coming and completely arrive with all of its goodness, all of its hope, all of its beauty. Someday Jesus has to either be king or not be king. And if they, if we won't join his kingdom willingly and don't want to be a part of it, then what's left for us? Well, we're going to have to wind up on the outside of the kingdom. And Jesus will ultimately honor our choice. He will weed us out of his kingdom or pick us out of the fishing net and honor our decision to opt out. That will be our choice. It's our choice right now. And Jesus says that will be our punishment. And Jesus warns it will awfully be, it will, it will ultimately be absolutely awful for us to choose that way. Like being cast into a fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's how Jesus leaves it. That's how he leaves his parables of the kingdom. And so like it or not, it's where we need to leave it too in the end. But until then, the invitation is open. Even now, Jesus is fishing. Jesus is gathering. Jesus is drawing. Jesus is collecting whoever will come into his kingdom. Jesus is sowing, sharing his word, urging us to open our ears and to open our hearts to be like good soil. And so the question for each of us is, how will we respond? And will we receive his invitation? Let's pray. Jesus, you came bringing good news. And you also loved us enough to tell us the whole truth, to warn us of what we needed to be warned of, and to warmly invite us into what you were offering us. I pray, as you said so often in your parables, that we would have ears to hear, that we would be open to respond to your invitation. And maybe there's some of us who want to do that this morning. We want to open our hearts and say, Jesus, I want to receive your word. I want you to be my king, not because I deserve it, not because I'm good enough, but because you're willing to have grace on me, to receive me in and then to change me, to become the kind of person who will be a kingdom person, a person of goodness and healing and love and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.